0: You are listening to the Small Like Hunting Podcast, the hunting podcast that is free of advertisements, bought and paid for opinions, and minutes and minutes of sponsorships. If that's what you want, there's a plethora of other podcasts out there. Here, we're going to talk openly, we're going to talk honestly, and we're going to live in the real world, free of sponsorships and paid for advertisements and opinions that are governed and dictated by them that Sounds interesting. Stay tuned for this episode of the Smalley Grounding Podcast. All right, guys, let's get this episode started. To say I'm excited for what you're about to listen to is a little bit of an understatement. Um, the other night, it's March 26th today when this episode is dropping, but couple nights ago i got to sit down and have a chat with a soil nerd you get to listen to a soil nerd talk to a deer nerd and i mean just anything and everything that has to do with soil we enter into the mind of al temechko um, good friend al who i know moving forward i'm probably going to be using and tapping into as a resource as i delve deeper into the no-till strategies that many many people out there um are diving into I know myself we've dabbled in it and then last year when the drought hit and our fall food plots were just an atrocious failure except for our winter rye Um, and you're gonna hear me and Al um, we're both really big fans of winter rye and you know winter rye saved my food plots but the main reason why my plots failed was the fact that they did not have enough growth when the drought hit and they did not have any thatch layer so the 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 soil was just baking and no doubt i set back the organic matter the living um m- microbes and and basically the living world in my soil probably got hurt pretty hard last year so but uh you're going to get to listen to me and Al sit down and just enter into a conversation at times where you can tell I'm distracted, I'm taking notes, and uh, I just try to keep the conversation going because Al is just a guy who has delved headlong into this about 18 months ago, and it, it's funny. We were actually texting today, and uh, and after the episode even some, we were talking, and it's just, this is a never-ending process for those of us that are getting into or looking up and beginning to want to um, do more for our soil health and understanding of soil health is a growing phenomenon out there where even um, nutritionists and biologists and, and farmers, and you're going to hear a lot of mentions of names and resources throughout this episode. And uh, it's just an incredible time. Um, quick little check in with me. It's March 26th. If you're listening to this episode Probably in the next couple of days, you're gonna see some uh, videos get uploaded to both the YouTube, the website and such. And it's basically some of the timber uh, timber days, timber work days that me and Pops have done at the property. Finally getting that uh, the cleared logged section by the road. Um, we did a lot of girdling and hinging down there. We did a lot more hinging down there. Um, where there's road access and trespassing off of the uh, off of the road, there, we wanted to we wanted to really create a hard um, hard time for those guys and and gals that come off the road, both in mushroom season and just it seems like whenever they want. Um, but we also wanted that visual block. You know, if I'm going to ask deer to be bedding, or if I'm going to see any kind of bedding activity. Uh, In that area, I want to try to get it as low and as close to the road as possible because it maximizes my square footage. And when you're dealing with small acres like mine, that becomes a very pivotal thing. Uh, And we also did a lot of uh, girdling, uh, girdle techniques up in the northeast section of my property. Um, an area that should thicken up we've we've removed probably about ninety to ninety five percent of the canopy should be either down on the ground through traditional falling, about five to eight percent hinging and a ton of girdling of the non uh, logged out trees so the canopy is basically. going to be wide open and we're going to see a lot of growth on the forest floor we're going to have to go back in there and do some uh, bush honeysuckle uh, control we're probably going to go back in and do some hack and squirt on any of the girdles that didn't quite kill the trees because that does happen especially when the sap is running like it was for us but i'm just extremely excited to show you that and i'm extremely excited for this episode of the smaller hunting podcast so, without further ado, because this is a long one, it's a long discussion, but it's an amazing discussion, and I'm sure many of you will find it very, very interesting. All right, welcome everybody to this episode of the Small Acre Hunting Podcast. I am extremely excited. As promised, 2021 is going to include a lot more guests on the podcast, um, guests that are consultants out there, guests that are friends of mine, guests that are fellow uh, habitat enthusiasts, Deer enthusiasts, hunters in general, just all kinds of things. And I'm extremely excited tonight to invite on Al to Hopefully I didn't butcher that too much. But today we're going to talk about uh, the the living organisms that happen underneath our feet. Um, So many times us as deer hunters focus so much on the four-legged critters that we're chasing and everything that lives above ground. I'm looking really forward to this because I know, Al, you love everything below the ground as well
1: yeah absolutely yeah I'm really excited to jump in uh, and chat with you about this it's it's an honor that uh, we got to connect and that you uh, want to have me on to talk a little bit about soil
0: so one of the reasons listeners why I wanted to invite Al on was I don't know if you follow if you if you don't swing over to the habitat chat Facebook page it's a uh, it's kind of a forum slash facebook page that was started page started by the guys over at habitat podcast uh jared and brian and al al's kind of the main moderator over there would that be the correct way to express it
1: yeah absolutely
0: and al about 18 months 24 months ago really started delving into this you know understanding soil health and the importance of it and so he comes from a perspective like many of us that maybe just are getting into this or just starting to kick into a groove and I'm going to try to just let Al talk tonight and facilitate questions and and go through some stuff but just kind of to briefly introduce yourself Al if you could give us just kind of a brief synopsis of who Al is and where'd you come from where we find you now and then let's get talking about soil.
1: Yeah no absolutely I appreciate that uh, Ty so um yeah Albert uh, or Al Tomechko I go by either or uh, I'm just a regular Joe I mean I, I'm I'm not an agronomist, uh, I'm just a very passionate guy about uh, white-tailed deer, and I have been since I was little, uh, grew up in Ohio, manage our family property that's uh, just under 250 acres in eastern Ohio, and uh, have been doing that for about 11 years. Um, we started with uh, 60 acres, and uh, as time went on, uh, we added to that property, and you know, Through that, we, we added uh, more plantable acreage. So in eastern Ohio, you're primarily in the foothills of Appalachia. So your soil is not um, ideal, right? It's not like western Ohio. People think of Ohio a lot and they go, oh, you must have great soil. But uh, central Ohio and western Ohio have dark black soil uh, typically,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: but not, not when you get into um, you know, the foothills of Appalachia. It's, it's a lot of clay and um, a lot of the forest has been high graded. I'm, I'm pretty passionate about TSI work as well. Uh, But yeah, I've been, I just been practicing, you know, QDM uh, ideologies for about 11 years now. Um, You know, I started managing our place, I guess I'd have been about 19 years old. So, you know, from a maturity perspective, all the way up to just an understanding of how things function perspective at 19, I don't think you know, you know, as much as you think you do. Um, Oh, but we thought we did. Oh yeah. 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 I I definitely could, (laughs) could teach my old self some tricks now, but uh, you know you, you just understand the importance of learning from those who are far smarter than yourself and um, I've really got into uh, you know watching a lot of people develop uh, the no-till methodologies um, in the hunting world was interesting to to me uh, but I really wanted to understand like the you know the why so I started diving into um, some of that that we'll get into and um, yeah I mean I'm just a regular Joe I, I don't have any um, you know any special uh things other than recently I did start a YouTube channel just to document um you know I love to garden so one thing people might people not, might not know about me um I actually implement a lot of the things that we do for food plots right cover crops things like that actually in my garden so I had uh, about 200 tomato plants last year and about 170 pepper plants uh, those are my two core staple crops and then of course I had a bunch of other stuff so um it's it's quite sizable and um I, I, lo- I love to do that and you know, I have found so many people with similar um, tastes who like to do that and they just don't really understand uh, how soil functions and they just want to pour miracle grow on everything and um, that's okay, but it, it's not, in my opinion, uh, the best way to do it. It's not the most nutritious way to do it in the long run and we can use the soil to make that food better um, for us and, and you know, make the soil healthier as well. So I started a YouTube channel um, just about a week or two ago. I got about 11 videos up there uh, showing different areas of the farm and um, a little bit as well as some test things that I've done just in my backyard with some cover crops. And uh, that's called A Journey to Better Soil and Timber. Uh, And basically, that's what I am. I'm just going to document all of my um, methods and, and food plots and things like that. Um, and then I do on uh, The Ohio Outdoors, which is a forum. Uh, you and I were talking before we started recording you know, about the old QDMA forums and stuff. And, uh, I've been on that one. It's owned by two really great guys, uh, Joe and Jesse. And um, they started that, I think it's 15 years now, something like that. And I think I've been on it just about the whole time. So they've literally, I've grown up with those guys, uh, you know, kind of through the internet, but I've got to meet several of them in person. And Uh, Just really, really good guys. I started a a thread over there and they they pinned it. They were nice enough to pin it for me to the top. And it's called uh, no till hyphen so easy. Uh, And I just go through and document some of my own, um, some of my own techniques. And then also uh, some of the things that uh, guys ask questions about, you know, I don't, I'm no expert at all. So if I don't know something, um, I do have kind of this burning desire to learn. So I will look it up. right? I'll read a book. I'll read a peer-reviewed research study. I'll do what I have to do to try to get somebody an answer. Uh, I just kind of naturally like to help people out. So there's a lot of back and forth dialogue in that thread, and it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun, a lot of positive feedback, and a lot of people have taught me stuff, and I, hopefully I, I left something there for somebody to you know, learn from as well.
0: Yeah, if for those listening, if you go over to the Ohio Outdoors, go to the Wildlife and Habitat section. You have to scroll down a little bit. It's the Wildlife and Habitat Management section, and it's right there at the top of the page. Uh, no-till food plots—so easy. It's right there. I've read through it. It's about eleven pages long. A lot of comments, um, and you started it back just last fall. So yeah, yeah, a lot of good information there. And for those wondering about the YouTube, uh, a journey to better soil and timber. That's actually on your personal property, which you said earlier was about seven acres, give or take?
1: Uh, no. no. So that, that is um, primarily on our family's property okay. in eastern Ohio. Gotcha. Um, but I do have one or two videos there just behind the house. I think the first video I posted, which I'm talking about rye grain, um, taking advantage of photosynthesis, is actually right behind my house. So okay. that's I got a little apple orchard there. So it's a mixture, and I'll be shooting some videos in my garden there too. So I'll try to distinguish that, you know, kind of where, where I'm at and what the soil type is, if, if that's what I'm talking about there. Uh, but I also am covering quite a bit of our um, TSI work on that channel, which is uh, through our Equip program at the farm uh, in Eastern Ohio.
0: Gotcha. Um, so let's delve right into the first step. You kind of hit it on it when you got interested, you know, this whole no-till um, I don't want to call it a fad because it really isn't. It's been around for a very long time. It's just, It seems to be picking up steam and it's kind of crossed over. The agricultural community is really embracing it. And now it's transitioning, especially into those of us in the habitat, food plotting. And as you said, even, even uh, gardeners are utilizing it more. So what actually, do you remember what prompted your interest in it? Was it just hearing about it here and there continually?
1: So... You know, when I first started um, food plotting would have been, I don't know, like I said, probably 11 years ago, give or take, right? And one of the first things that I always was interested in just from reading things on the old QDMA forum was for whatever reason, I felt like this uh, organic matter was the key to success, right? Like that was the baseline metric that we needed to increase. Like if, if that was increasing, all things were good. And of course there was all these different ideologies as to how you do that, right? Some guys all go through the perennial clover stand and, and leave that there. So it's just pumping nitrogen in and keep treating the grasses and keep treating the broad leaves, right? And and then uh, you gotta run that tiller through there and plow that under, plow it under green, right? You know, and, and that's how you add this organic matter, you know, and hi hey, I was trying all of these different methods mm-hmm. and I just wasn't having much success. And um, increasing OM, and you know, well, it takes a long time, and it. So I just kind of started to read more and more um, on forums, primarily at that time, right? So wasn't really a hundred percent sure where to go yet, um, but was trying to figure out, okay, what else could I do? And you know, there's so many varying opinions on stuff, and that's one thing. I'm like, you just got to try stuff. You know, yep. and people will tell you it is never going to work, and it's like, well, I'm going to try it. So uh, what I started to do initially is i'm like man i just i hate to plow all that beautiful clover under like every you know every year or something or half of it every year or whatnot like i'm gonna start doing and this was probably paul Knox, honestly is probably where i got this from i don't want to um you know take it like it was my own my own idea you know i started well maybe i'll split food plots in half you know so i started doing some of that rotating crops right so um trying to trying to take advantage of that and i had some success there so i started to see some om increasing and stuff and um Continue to just be infatuated with okay how you know i love taking soil samples every year and i just was like how can i continue to increase this and um then i had the bright idea you know guys started talking about no-till you no know, and no-till drills and all this wonderful stuff which um, someday i hope to have but right now most of the things that i'm talking about are going to be uh, through just broadcast methods so i started having these beautiful clover stands now maybe at this point they're two years old and i started broadcasting radish turnip and rye grain right into the clover and i had really good success with it you know i mean it's relative speaking right like relatively speaking excuse me i i didn't have softball sized turnips but i was literally broadcasting it into a beautiful clover stand um so as i started to kind of see these things we were we were fortunate to purchase um you know additional land so we went from 60 acres to about 200 almost 250 and um you know it's just one of those once in a lifetime opportunities just couldn't pass it up to buy the adjacent property and um, when we did that it increased our plantable acreage uh significantly right so i'm doing probably upwards of 10 acres give or take a year in, in food plots and now i'm like my goodness like i can't afford to just if i do all these in clovers like i can't afford just to spray them all with cleft you know let alone the time and diesel to mow these and and to do all this other maintenance i'm like well what about you know planting um standard like putting the tiller on the tractor and and run it and i'm like there's got to be a better way There, there, there just has to be a better way and you know at the same time i can't make it seem like i had some a great epiphany you know there were guys in the in the industry starting to talk specifically the deer industry um you know dr grant woods was doing a lot in the ozark mountains um jason snavely was talking a lot on uh whether whether it be at that time a facebook group or a podcast or or something you know there were guys talking about it more frequently i would say in the last five years and I started to pick up, like, you know, maybe this no-till has something to it. You know, maybe this this spreading into a thatch has has something to it. My buddy Phil Holcomb out of um, Pennsylvania, you know, he had done some really cool things on his small property and, and uh, had done no-till for a long time. And I had followed some stuff Phil had put on, uh, I think that was QDMA form as well. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's really kind of what got me into it is the thought of, like, I want to reduce input costs. You know, it's like I want to add additional food and good quality food. I don't want it to be nothingness. I can't, I mean, you're talking when you start talking 10 acres, Appalachian soils, um, just in fertilizers alone. I was looking at a bill if I wanted to do it right over a thousand dollars.
0: Yep. Every single year.
1: Every year. And I'm thinking, gosh darn, like, and and then you're not even talking diesel fuel time. Do you know how long it would take to till? Because these plots, primarily in in where our property is, like, you're not going to have like a big 10 acre field. You just aren't going to get that. It's just, it's very rugged terrain. So, you know, I've got an acre here and then you drive down the road, you know, a quarter mile, and then you go into another part of the farm. You got a, a little acre and a half or two acre field. Then you get that done. And, I mean, it's, it's broken up. So drive time, it takes time, equipment, everything. Um, so I'm like, there's just got to be a, a better way. And it's still a lot of work. Don't get me wrong. Um, and then I just, I started reading, you know, uh, dirt to soil. And I really started following a lot of the seminars on YouTube, you know, with Ray Archuleta, and I'll get into some of the other areas later, but uh, really started to understand how the soil functions. And the more I learned about it, the more I realized I didn't know, and the more I realized what can really be accomplished with these processes, especially for whitetail deer farming it is catching on like regenerative agriculture is catching on cover crops have been used for a while but you know no till i was listening to a podcast today on no till farming and um they're talking about doing it back in uh, washington county iowa and they were doing it in uh 1980 i think they were saying they had been doing it there uh significantly and the number of no till farmers had doubled like every year after that or something it's really interesting but they have a lot more to lose oh yeah right? They have yields on the line and all these other things, and that's something I, I've seen a lot of that on on Facebook, where um, people will try to like make a point to a farmer, and it's like don't you don't want to blur the lines too much. Like there are good points to bring up, and I think a lot of farmers are very interested in in learning more about this, and and obviously it's their livelihood. Like if anybody's learning about it, it's most likely them.
2: Mm-hmm. But
1: planting a, a, a small area for for whitetail deer is not significantly different than um, than farming for profit yeah our
0: if if our plots fail our 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 mortgage still gets paid exactly theirs may not
2: exactly They can't
0: risk that but cover cropping is really becoming popular and i i credit that to this concept as a whole too soil health and such a lot more farmers i know in my area now versus when i 10 years ago or when i was younger you just never saw cover cropping used
1: so oh, 100%. 100%. It, I, I do
0: like – I think it's happening. It's happening slow because, like you said, they have a lot to
1: lose. Yeah, and, I mean, there's still just so much to be learned about this. I yep. mean, even PhD, even the PhDs um, will tell you, like, oh, my gosh, it's almost endless. And, you know, there's some crazy statistic. They, they suspect there to be one trillion microorganisms in, in the soil, right? And they think that they have identified, like, 10%.
0: It's a whole nother world.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And so they've identified 10% and they've only identified a small portion of how it all interacts with each other. Right. And what is the the cycle of how everything interacts? And um, as you start to dig into it, I mean, it's a real rabbit hole. But as you start to dig into it, um, it made me think twice about kind of what I'm doing. Right. And, and what can I do to better the soil and. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's really how I kind of got into the no-till now. Um, I haven't, I sold, I had two tillers. I sold one and the other one hasn't left the barn in three years.
0: So now are you doing a, you know, for those listening, a lot, I know a lot of guys are like me, I can't afford a drill.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You mm-hmm. can do this without a drill, but are you using both? Do you, do you do both broadcasting no-till? no till methodology or did you start out doing that do you do drill now i'm assuming on some of your places
1: So right now i do everything with uh, i i am fortunate i do have a nice tractor Mm -hmm. um nice size tractor but i do everything with i spray it with roundup right now and i uh, broadcast right into a thatch, and i pray for rain gotcha that's it um i do like to leave like some guys like to mow myself Uh, personally i like to uh, spread the seed with the thatch standing as tall as i can Mm -hmm. and then i like to spray it and let that thatch just naturally fall down because it'll help especially with bigger seeds that thicker layer of thatch uh, it's going to die it's going to start breaking down right and uh, that thicker layer of thatch is going to give you protection against predation from whether it be turkey coon uh, just songbirds etc so That's my technique, and uh, I can send some pictures, or or some of the people might, if they check that YouTube channel out, um, you'll see that first picture there. Uh, It's a turnip bigger than than the ball cap I had on, and uh, that's zero synthetic inputs. That is simply growing up through thatch that I had sprayed and spread into.
0: Now, how many years, because I've seen, I know which one you're talking about. Now, how many years removed from starting no-till in that spot had that soil been through?
1: Uh, well, that particular spot, I, I honestly had been um, clover primarily. Okay. So it had been like a, a primary clover plot up until two years ago.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I think that was only its second year with turnips in it. But um, so there's a lot of nitrogen in that soil, I mean, pumping into it. Yep. But uh, I mean, I, honest, honestly, this year doing – It was the best year I've ever had for food plots, and I think this year is the the first time I went 100%. Um, No, no, that's not true. It's been a couple years now that we've done 100% no-till on it. But I think what we did this year is we left the thatch thicker Mm Is the difference this year instead of mowing it off. Now, when you you
0: say thicker, for those listening, do you mean just elevation-wise? You're leaving it as tall as possible.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Imagine. exactly. Like a lot of people want to cut it and it, well, should I wait a couple of days and then spray it? And that's the thing about this method, right? Is like, you know, uh, you and I were talking before we started recording, you know, I got, I got a uh, pregnant wife. I got a baby on the way. Yep. Like Everybody's lives are busy and I, I don't have the ability to always be, oh, I'm going to spray it. Then I'm going to wait two weeks and then I'm going to spray it again. I'm going to wait. Like that was getting exhausting, right. Mm-hmm. From, from a, a timing perspective on, on the old method. So what I'll do now is I let that stuff let it grow, you know. I I don't I don't worry about it, and I come in, I spray it, and or actually I spread, and I'll come in and spray, or maybe I'll spray first. But I'm not really concerned about that. Uh, but I want that seed to fall down, and then that batch just kind of naturally fall over. So uh, that has worked very very well, and I've been I've been really happy with it.
0: And for those listening, we're talking about you're spreading and spraying, you're passing through then loading up the sprayer and you're doing it the same day
1: oh yeah same time normally my cousin is my cousin or a buddy i gotta pay in bush lights or something is is, uh on the (laughs) four-wheeler and i'm on the tractor and we're we're moving buddy i mean it's it's um you know and it'll take all day still i mean just from from traveling perspective and um you know driving driving around uh the farm trying to get from one spot to the next and, and stuff but we have it's one thing now when i get if i can get to a point where i have a crimper Um, Mm -hmm. I saw Lincoln with Packer Max is making them now. So, you know, if I can get to a point where I have a cripper and can reduce my, uh, herbicide load Mm -hmm. into the soil, I will do that. I would absolutely love to do that, but same idea, right? I would spread, um, I would spread the seed. I'd let that thatch be as tall as possible. Might be the better word word to use, but Mm -hmm. um, as tall as possible. Right. And then I would come in and I'd crimp that right over top of it. Yep. And I'd just pray for rain, buddy.
0: And knowing you and how your mind thinks, you're probably, if you get a hold of a crimper, you're going to do some and compare the results.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, most likely would.
0: And then I'm sure we'll all get to follow along because you'll definitely, definitely be sharing all that on your YouTube channel.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like I said, it, you know, it's funny. You, you start to document things. You realize how much effort it is to really document stuff. <laughs> But, uh, yes. you know, I do a lot to do with Jared at uh, Habitat Podcast, you know, and, and Brian and those guys, like I send a, a lot of stuff there. So between the two, whether I put it on my YouTube or send something over to those guys or, or write a blog about it or something, it, I will try to get it out there because uh, I was the guy who didn't know really where to go, you know, next. And I want to just try to give back and help some people out in, in an area I feel I can.
0: Hey, as I tell people who follow me all the time, let me be your guinea pig.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's essentially
0: what we are. Um, so, you, you know, gearing towards soil health now and everything, you know, everybody hears and you can't utter the word soil test enough, but for some people, and and there are certain aspects of soil readouts and such that even I would say, I have to look up, what does this mean again? What is it? It's like reading Greek or Hebrew for people. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if you could take some, let's break down some of the common things about a soil testing and, and what all the abbreviations stand for and do we lime or not, how much, yeah. kind of break that down for us.
1: Yeah, so I want to give a little bit of emphasis on the fact that, again, remember, I'm trying, my main focus is building organic matter mm-hmm. through diversity so i want to limit inputs as much as possible so i guess i say that as like a little bit of a of a uh, disclaimer here but the way i look at this is you know ph what does that tell me okay i i either have to line or i don't Mm -hmm. okay that's it that that's what that's what it's telling me i either need to get that ph from from you know four try to get it up to 6.57 or if it's at 6.5 and i I'm like, yeah, you know what? It's good enough, right? I don't want to add that extra uh, salt load onto my soil that, you know, salt is, is not the best for uh, microorganism. Mm-hmm. I might forego liming a year or two. Like, so the pH, all that tells me, am I going to lime or not? Now, there are some studies that show about nutrient uptake and different things like that. Um, again, for, for food plotting for deer, um, I, I'm not worried about, you know, six to seven or, you know, 5.8 probably even to seven i might do a light dosage of lime but uh, or dosing of lime excuse me but i'm not, I'm not overly worried so that's all I, I focus on when it comes to ph mm-hmm. uh cec that's essentially what is this how is the soil made up right so um if it has a very low cec sandy if it has a very high cec you get up more towards the clay what do i use there well honestly my main focus there is as a consistency tracker So your CEC is typically not going to, like if you're planting in Michigan sandy soil, Mm -hmm. and then the next year you get your soil test results back and it's a 25 CEC, which then you look on your little scale, right? Because nobody can remember all this stuff. And you look on your little scale and go, oh my gosh, 25 is like heavy clay. Your soil test might not be accurate. Maybe they got them mixed up at the lab. Maybe you, you know, Picked something up that was in the plot by accident that was stuck on your work boots from a different place like who knows right but i use that as a metric for measuring consistency Um, now as you increase your organic matter your cec can change Mm -hmm. right so typically as you increase well I, i call it to the left of the scale but above 25 you can even get into like um like swampy muck Right, and that can have a CEC of like 40 or 50. I can't remember because I've never been that far over on the scale. But, uh, you know, there's some places like in Ohio that have like this swampy muck that they turn into gardens and has super high organic matter. But for talking purposes, I mean, increasing organic matter can take quite a bit of time. And to increase your CEC without a slight variance, I really just like to make sure that it's consistent and I'm not all over the board. So I like to use that as a little bit of a tracking um, device to make sure that my samples are getting, you know, I do nine samples a year. I just sent them in.
2: So mm-hmm.
1: I have, I want to make sure that everyone is as consistent as possible. Um, and then organic matter. Well, like I said earlier, I mean, that's my baseline for knowing if what I'm doing is working, you know, and the why's or why not. Um, you know, a lot of times, um, uh, I, I want to see my organic matter go go up you know I don't want to see it stay stagnant I surely don't want to see it go down um and if it does do any of that those things I want to have an understanding as to why um so I have been very fortunate since I've been doing this so I had I think about three years of soil s- samples that I've been doing the the no-till um you know method and mm-hmm. um my organic matter has been going up pretty consistently. I might've had one or two anomalies where it went down and maybe that was just a sample um, that year, you know, who knows, Uh, but it didn't go down enough to make me overly concerned. And typically what I'll do is I just color code that as like, all right, this one went down by half, you know, 0.25, right. Mm -hmm. It went down why, you know, we didn't till that field, what, what happened there. Um, And then I'll try to make up a, a game plan. Uh, but, you know, one of the things I want to highlight is on these soil tests. you know, you have your pH or CEC and your OM, and, you know, you also have on your traditional soil test, you have well your, your readings of like NP and K, like what, what's your fertilizer recommendations or sometimes you'll have magnesium readings and stuff. And, you know, one of the things that often comes back is uh, low phosphorus you look at a lot of soil tests and phosphorus often comes back as as low. And one of the reasons is, and like one of the things that's very difficult about these measurements and why you might hear um, as this trend, or it's not really, well, it is trending upward, right? The the popularity of no-till, especially with the regenerative agriculture focus grows, is you might hear a lot of people uh, talk about the Haney soil test Mm -hmm. and that functions differently, right? That is basic, in, in basic terms, That's a measurement of what is actively bioavailable in the soil, right? So what is actively bioavailable? And the reason that's important is because like phosphorus is in, is often in the soil, but it's not readily available. So it actually needs microbes to make it soluble to the plant. So a lot of your traditional soil tests are going to show that phosphorus is just simply not soluble uh, without the microorganisms delivering it. So it could actually be bound up in the soil. It's just not soluble yet. So until you have your microorganisms working through a symbiotic relationship, right? You're not gonna be able to have that to your plants. So, um, you know, I'm personally, I'm really interested if we're missing out on, or if we could potentially be hurting the cycle by always dumping phosphorus-based fertilizers onto a lot of the plants. And a similar study that people can look up is, Uh, Dr. Christine Jones talks about this. She calls it the nitrogen loop, uh, which is a similar concept, right? But basically what this is saying is that when we continually put an abundance of nitrogen, uh, we reduce the soil's ability to naturally fix atmospheric nitrogen. So what that means is the plants are no longer pumping carbon root exudates into the soil and then having the microorganisms in the soil, mycorrhizal fungi, give them something back. So, that's typically kind of how that works. And I'll get into that in a little bit more detail, um, but which it basically exhausts the good microbial life in the soil because it's starving to death because it's not getting those root exudates. So, I can't tell you that that's what's happening with phosphorus or potassium or some of these other soil readings. But at, if you're going this route of trying to build soil organic matter, like I don't worry about the fertilizers right now. I'm like, okay. You know, I, I don't, uh, I, I see that maybe something's a little bit low or, you know, whatever, it might be a little bit out of whack. You can use fertilizer. I'm not saying don't use it at all, but there's been a lot of studies that show a large amount of it ends up as runoff or ends up not being, ends up being bound up or just volatilizes in the, in the, in the soil uh, or basically into the air, right? So it becomes not bioavailable for the plants anyways. So it might be a good idea. Don't kill yourself on your fertilizer bill you know, do a test, maybe take a half acre and do full application, take a half acre and do half application and see if you can see any discernible differences. If you're stuck on using fertilizer and you don't want to go that route of, of totally kicking the, kicking the habit, which that's everybody's choice as to how they want to go forward.
0: Now, have you done any of the Haney tests on your stuff?
1: I have not yet. Um, I, I looked into it, but I have not, not taken that approach yet, but I do hope to One day when I'm bored and have nothing to do, (laughs) I hope to find time to do that.
0: Well, but, I mean, if you listen to Jason Snavely enough and some of the others in the industry, if you keep focusing on organic matter, limiting your inputs, I think it would shock them to see a bad Haney report come back after years of doing it the way that you're you're heading towards.
1: Yeah, I agree. Because it just builds
0: a healthy, living soil. Because for those who are listening, I mean— Al, the the destruction of those microbes, what 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 actions can that are, that we can do cause that, and are there any natural actions? Because you know some people might be thinking, okay, that's great, I'm not doing anything to kill those microbes or lessen a viable living space for them. What are some of the things or practices that can slowly
1: destroy that? Well, I mean the one word that gets thrown a lot, around often is is. Um, symbiosis right or, or symbiotic relationship so if you're not if you don't have diversity in plantings right the microbes are going to starve to death you'll hear uh, a term often thrown around as carbon and nitrogen ratios well basically you need to have enough nitrogen being pumped into the soil through carbon root exudates right, liquid carbon so plants take in uh, sunlight through photosynthesis and they pump that into like a liquid form liquid gold i think is what game brown uh, calls it and it pumps into the soil and the mycorrhizal fungi that is in the soil tr- it's like the economy right they trade they trade they say oh I want this this sugar right this carbon liquid this liquid gold i want this sugar oh what do you need you need some of these it's literally where we're biology and geology combined oh you need some of these these uh, minerals here and they it then converges and they quote-unquote trade right um and and basically in layman's terms that's how how this works and um, when you till right you kill or break up or dry out that mycorrhizal fungi when you till the soil you are releasing organic matter now right that was in the soil because you're uncovering it Mm -hmm. to oxygen so that's why sometimes when you initially till and some farmers have done this with great success. Like they will be no-till for four or five years. And then to control weeds, they'll till one year. And then they'll go right back into a no-till program. But what they do is they take advantage of all that organic matter that has built up. And they'll till once. Um, and you do lose some organic matter, right? Through, through erosion and, and uh, opening it up to oxygen, right? The, the bacteria can't survive. It, it gets opened up to, um, it's now exposed to oxygen, um, so, so that's something as well. The other thing is, if you only have a clover plot and there's no diversity there, you, you're only putting nitrogen there, but you also have to have a carbon element in order for the microbes to live, right? It's it's this balance. So like our native prairies had so much diversity and there was so much balance there. There was a lot of nitrogen being pumped into, but there was also a lot of uh, carbon elements of of, you know grasses that were breaking down and dying or had been browsed on and maybe had been over browsed right so they were dying The root system was dying so that carbon was then being able to get broken down by the microbes and so by not doing anything at all right if, if it's just like a clover plot or something of that nature um, you can have negative impacts some of the things that i do which is uh, herbicide use so i don't have a crimper right now i don't have a no-till drill so i have to rely on herbicides well, some of that has been known to slow or slightly hinder. I don't know if I've ever seen any um, anything that's made me overly concerned, but at least slightly hinder um, the microbiology and soil. Well. Again, we don't know a ton about it. Mm-hmm. But like Even Gabe Brown uses um, some herbicides when he needs to. He's very limited on it, mm-hmm. uh, but if he needs to, he will use them. So those are some of the things, and hopefully I answered your question there and didn't get too off track, but those are some of the things that can be um, done by us or not done that are not going to be conducive to increasing the soil biology, uh, and the, you know, the density of microbes in that soil.
0: Yeah. Putting myself in the shoes of those listening, they're probably curious. Um, you know, you mentioned the use, you do use herbicide or chemicals. What are some of the kind that Al uses on his food plots? Um, I'm assuming, I know you said Roundup before, um, mm-hmm. is Glyphosate one that you, you utilize?
1: So I have, um, now i don't I, I only i strictly use um generic glyphosate uh you know roundup uh et cetera. Yep. that's what i use i use that uh and i try to use it once a year um and that's it so mm-hmm. this year i will be planting a spring mix um and i did last year too so i had some some clover and i went in with uh, a buckwheat and clover mix and a lot of people told me i couldn't do this and I went right in there in springtime and spread buckwheat. Um, I did a trial of it, right? So I didn't go as heavy as I probably should have, but I spread buckwheat right into the standing clover. And I had, I had buckwheat all over the place inside of that clover. The deer hit it very hard, but I'm not worried about that. I just want to root, root in there to, to add some diversity. Oh, right. Yeah. Bu- and, oh yeah. Uh,
0: buckwheat will grow anywhere. I, I love using buckwheat in the spring.
1: Yeah. It's, it's just fantastic crop. It really is. And, I think clover is a, a nice, really, really nice, uh, to mix in with it as well, to have that legume that's just going to pump that nitrogen into the soil. Mm-hmm. And then you have the buckwheat, you know, as well, um, which is kind of a known soil builder, right? Really good root structure and, um, you know, deer like, and, and, and things like that as well. So that's, uh, what, I, what I plan to do this year is actually, uh, as I was mentioning earlier, letting, letting that get vertically tall, right? the, the thatch and then, I'm going to spread uh, buckwheat, sunflowers, and probably medium red clover into the fields that had previously had radish and turnip and hairy vetch and, and clovers and all that fun stuff. And I'm going to spread into that. And then I'm going to go back to the barn, hook the bush hog up. And I'm just going to mow real high all of that. Um, it, it's going to be probably about as tall as the back tire on the tractor. You know, you're talking, it'll be like three foot tall.
0: So you're going, going to, to keep that brush up. hog as high as the three point, will keep it.
1: Pretty much. And I'm just going to knock that down and whatever grows up in there, whatever comes. I'm not worried about it because all I'm trying to do is build that soil. I want a robust root system. I want some buckwheat to pop up. I'm sure some sunflowers will grow a little bit and get nipped. That's fine. I'm sure that red clover will probably make a nice jump, but that's fine. You know, if I have to mix in a little bit of lime, depending on soil test, I will do that. Uh, But the goal is just have a bunch diversity and a bunch of living roots growing. Through that soil, I, I use GreenCoverSeed.com. Um, they have a smart mix function, and you can play with the carbon to nitrogen ratios you want to balance in your field. So I do play with that a little bit as, as well. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's that's my plan. I want to go in there. I want to get all that diversity growing. I want to keep feeding the soil micros, um, microbiome. If you want to, want to get fancy, use the term that's thrown around a lot in, in a PhD research. And then in the fall, right, barring no changes in in getting a drill or or crimper by that time, which I don't know if I will. uh, I will simply then go in, round up all of it out. And just like I said, I mean, well, I'll probably spread first and then go in and and round up uh, those fields down and start to cycle over again, with a super diverse mix.
0: Gotcha. Now the mix that you, you sent me a list of what you were thinking you were going to do. Um, Yeah. You know, there's, there's, for, for the listeners, do you want to run through it or do you want me to?
1: No, oh, go, go ahead. So,
0: you know, the the ideal summer mix or the spring mix, you're going to plant this probably sometime in, what, as early as you can get out there, or April, May-ish
1: in your area? Yeah, I would say May. Um, I looked it up on this website. Actually, somebody posted on Habitat Chat, and it was really cool. I'd never seen that website before. Um, but I th- want to say around May 5th, the soil temperature are right around mm-hmm. 60 degrees.
2: Yeah.
0: Yep. Yeah, check that out. That's a great resource, knowing the soil temps of areas, and uh, that's a great link. The summer mix or the spring mix that Al was, gonna, was thinking about planting, you know, he's got sunflowers in there and buckwheat, which we've already touched on, milo, sorghum, pumpkins, clovers, cowpeas, forage beans, spring oats, and rapeseed, um, a very diverse mix. Now, you touched on something that maybe some people listening were like, wait, what? Um, you you said over at the green clo green cover seed you can pick and choose a variety of plants and 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 uh, see the output of carbon and nitrogen mm-hmm. yeah
2: now,
0: some plants for those listening you know fixate nitrogen into the soil or produce it the carbon so is that what you're talking about there for those that are listening?
1: Yeah so um, basically a carbon and nitrogen ratio is is the Rate at which something is going to break down into the soil. So it is, it's kind of a confusing topic, right? But like compost in an ideal compost environment to feed the microbes and break down compost, they say it's 24 to 1. So 24 parts carbon to one part nitrogen. So in an ideal situation in your soil, if you wanted to be feeding microbes all the time, there's been some different things on this. I actually I think Jason Snavely had a podcast on it where he talked about, like, I think it could be much lower as long as you're having enough feeding there, like maybe 10 parts carbon to to one part nitrogen. But I don't want to misquote Jason. I I hope, hopefully I didn't, but it was something about that. So there's, there's, people are still figuring out what is the perfect ratio. Um, But let's take, you know, a, oh gosh, I wish I knew one of these off the top of my head, but like young alfalfa, it's like 25 to one carbon and nitrogen which basically means it's probably going to break down really quickly, right? So um, maybe a better way to do this, Ty, is just to give an example. So if you took uh, a monoculture of clover, okay, and you sprayed it with Roundup, you could come back probably, oh, I don't know, a month later, and there would like, it would just be like bare dirt, right? Like everybody's done that, right? You just, you're like, oh, where'd that, where'd all that clover go that I sprayed? It's just, it's just gone. There's no real thatch there, right? Now, if you took a monoculture of rye grain, right? That tall, mature rye, and you sprayed it with Roundup in say June, you came back a m- month later, that rye thatch is still going to be there. You came back two months later, that rye thatch is probably still going to be there. Now, depending on how much, you know, um, nitrogens in the soils it will start to break down but that's kind of the idea so some crops typically your grasses take a longer period of time to break down and they're going to have a much higher carbon to nitrogen ratio you know mature wheat could be 40 to one right corn stalks are probably very high i don't i don't know what they are um but you know let's say they're 30 to one you know a clover might be 11 to one so you want to balance that right so you want to have some heavy Crops to some that break down easier and that pump nitrogen into the soil, legumes, right? Um, so when you have that balance, you get closer to that 24 to 1, which is the optimal, at least how it's defined currently, microbial diet. Hopefully that makes sense.
0: No, I love it. Uh... I think I think those that are listening, I think that made a lot of sense. And if you want, check out Jason Snavely. I remember the episode. I was trying to type it in. Sorry, that's why I kind of paused. I was trying to figure out exactly what episode it was for people. Um, and maybe I'll have that by the end of the episode for folks. But it's a great podcast, um, and he touches on that. So then, looking at your fall blend, you know, again, the the diversity is just immense. And I know I've I've slowly gravitated towards just trying for lack of a better term, trying to throw as much seed into the ground as possible. The diversity, mm-hmm. I just love it. And the deer seem to appreciate it. All animals seem to appreciate it. But we've got rye grain, oats, triticale, uh, winter wheat, hairy vetch, radish, turnips, red clover, crimson clover, one of my favorites, and rape. Um, hairy vetch is one that I know a lot of people, I've brought it up, and it seems like it's not as popular in, in some of the food, food industry. Just out of curiosity, because I know some people listening are probably going to be like, what is that? Al, what is hairy vetch?
1: So, hairy vetch is a legume. Um, it's very popular in the cover crop industry. Um, and honestly, it's there. QDMA had written a couple articles back in the day about it. You know, I don't think it's an overly high, um, highly preferred deer browse, but deer will browse it. Mm-hmm. You know, but honestly, I just wanted to add something a little bit different. Hairy vetch grows. It's kind of like like a viney type of growth it's, it's really neat to me and i thought it would be good to accompany that with some of the grasses um, that i had in there the oats and triticale and winter wheat and uh, rye grain and uh, also to have you know a different type of uh, legume in that mix so uh, you know obviously the radish turnips and red clover crimson clo- or excuse me the radish turnips and rape you know they're those are um, brassicas right so they need nitrogen so i wanted to um Get a lot of nitrogen-pumping legumes into that mix, and that's why I decided to go with that hairy vetch, uh, vetch as well.
0: Now, the one thing that a lot of people, and I know I've been reading up on a, a couple new updated studies, and if I have time, I'll link them in the in the comments in the in the show. But you know, the the common belief has always been that clovers can't release that nitrogen for other plants to use it until they expire.
2: Mm-hmm. That is
0: changing, correct? We are now starting to find that not all that doesn't seem to be the case. Or do you know Al?
1: Yeah, so I don't know exactly because I've I've read some different things on it. I I probably need a refresher, but I can tell you that what some of the things that they're finding is that when a clover is growing, right, it's it's fixing atmospheric nitrogen and it's storing it in its root system. What's happening then is, let's say that clover is browsed. Well, now what they're finding is, well, some of that root system, depending on the level of browse, will die. Well, now that nitrogen is bioavailable in the soil. So it doesn't necessarily, the whole plant might not have to die, um, but a portion of it will die in order to then uh, release into the soil. So that's something that is... um, Gosh, I just read something more on that too, and I'm, I'm kind of drawing a blank. But uh, that is something that is being continuously studied. And I know there was something else on that, I think recently, where it was talking about how brassicas grown next to um, like a clover or other legume. So brassicas are non-mycorrhizal, so they don't actually communicate um, with the mycorrhizal uh, fungi. But when they're growing next to a plant that does communicate with the mycorrhizal fungi, they can then actually – the whole system then kind of connects, right? And they're able to then get in part of the system, if you will, and benefit from some of that. So um, again, I mean there's been a lot of different things I've read on that, but I'm not an expert um, on that particular topic for sure.
0: But, I mean, in essence, by doing the more diverse plantings and such, we are, or you are, if you go this direction, you're growing your fertilizer. In essence, what you are planting is your fertilizer, and that is how you are eliminating your inputs because what you plant then becomes the nutrition that the soil and the future plants feed upon, for, for lack of a better term to put it.
1: Well, absolutely, absolutely, man, and and that's the whole thing is like. You might have somebody. Um, sometimes people ask, like, "Well, hey, what could I plant to fix potassium?" Right, because we think of like clover fixing nitrogen. Yeah. Um. You know. Uh, but, which is 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 cool. I mean, that's a good question. I've asked the same thing. I'm like, well, what does a turnip fix? But that's not really the the idea. Is through diversity. You're feeding the entire system, right? It's like an engine. You're feeding the whole engine, and as this engine breaks down the thatch layers and maintains moisture, like there's a whole other other element too of, of having this thatch layer, right? The plants are growing up through, and one of it's maintenance of maintaining moisture in the soil, right? So one of the things that can kill uh, microbiology in the soil is is temperature, right? Bare soil is um, is not good for microbiology in the summertime it gets way too hot it actually starts to kill it off um at a certain temperature it'll actually just decrease activity At another higher temperature it actually kills the uh the the microbiology in the soil so what is interesting about this is while you're doing these diverse mixes um it's not a one for one right like it's not like oh i plant this it fixes this we know that about clovers, right? But there's a whole nother world under the soil as to how this symbiotic relationship is functioning with the mycorrhiza, and how, is, how are those exchanges happening? And what happens when you put two partner crops? What happens if you put three partner crops or four partner crops or five partner crops? And how do those all function together, right? And that's why, like I was saying earlier, you know, I get, as long as my organic matter is going up, that tells me that what I'm doing through this diversity is heading in the right direction. You know, to me, that's like the most important because as that goes up, it's going to be more efficient. Your nutrient densities of your, your crops that you're growing, whether it be in a garden or a food plot are going to be higher. I mean, that's something I hope to eventually start doing is forage samples Um to test like, okay, what was the nutrient density in the crop this year? And then the next year, do the same exact type of sample. And then the next year, the same type of sample on the same field, right? And and see, are you getting higher nutrient densities or mineral contents, et cetera, from um, from those different plants? But you're 100% right, uh, Ty. I mean, that's the benefit of doing a multi-crop, highly diverse uh, species is you're building the soil. And as that organic matter increases, right, in your CEC, uh, will start to trend higher, right? Uh, Ray Archuleta has a great video about this because I, I was curious about it about six months ago, somebody asked me a question and I started looking into it. And Ray Archuleta talks about as you build your soil and you have more soil aggregates, right? So, um, which are biotic glues that are holding the soil together, right? Worm castings, um, glomalin, which is released through mycorrhizal through the root system, um, which is like a, it's like a biotic bio glue, right? It holds this soil together when all of this stuff is, is happening, your soil now has all these soil aggregates that are holding it together so it can hold more nutrients in it, right? Whether it be mineralized nutrients like potassium and, and phosphorus and micronutrients and all of those things that we want to have in our soil, right? Whereas when the soil is like dust and all the biotic glues are gone and it's deaggregated you're not able to retain that. So what do you have to do? You have to put synthetics to it because you, there, there's there's nothing there in the soil anymore, right? There's nothing to hold it. So hopefully that answers your question. I know I went on a little bit of a tangent, but hopefully I touched on some of the points uh, that you were interested in.
0: No, yeah, and it starts like three or four in my head and I'm sure the listeners, it does the same thing, same thing to them as well. Um, the one thing that, I know I really was curious about that you had written that you wanted to talk about was the whole photosynthesis part of feeding the plant, the plant exuding liquid carbon. You you actually did touch on it earlier, but I didn't know if you could delve into that a little bit deeper. I think that's where the whole uh, liquid gold type of situation is. That is that where Gabe Brown Gabe Brown mentions that.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, so basically, you know, a general outline. Um, And I'm sorry, I kind of jumped around a little bit, but just, you know, snap me back to it because my brain goes a 1000 miles an hour. But uh, yeah, you know, so basically, you hear this term a lot photosynthesis, right? You know, that's how a plant eats. But it's so much more than that, right? Because it's not just how a plant eats. You know, it's how the soil eats. Without plants, there's no life, right? It's just, it's just dirt. So you need the plant to take in sunlight that feeds the plant. The plant exudes right so it, it shoots out fancy word for for puts out liquid carbon so that's out of its root system into the rise of fear. fancy word for where the roots are actively growing let's say um, soil microbiology microbes they feed on that and in turn they give the plant nutrients back uh, and those nutrients might be uh, mineral minerals um, or something like that right so it's an exchange what Gabe Brown likes to mention, he calls them, you know, liquid carbon in the soil. Um, the soil can basically, the way he is ex- explains it is the soil can communicate with the plant. So the plant gives the soil what it needs or the microbiology what it needs. And it as the plant uh, feeds the microbiology what it needs, hence, or excuse me, so as the plant gives the microbiology what it needs, the microbiology in the soil, the mycorrhiza, right, gives it, the plant the nutrients that it's needing at that time so maybe it's saying i need nitrogen or or whatever it might be maybe it's a micronutrient it's it's magnesium something like that so hence that's why you hear this term symbiotic you know um and obviously like i said earlier you know some plants are known to likely uh mine certain nutrients better than others you know example buckwheat is known for mining phosphorus um as I said, you know, my take is I don't believe worrying about a specific nutrient mining matters all that much. Um, I would just rather keep focusing on diversity, keep managing that carbon to nitrogen uh, ratio, right? You don't want to have a situation where you just go so heavy with grains and then you come back in six months and you're like, oh, boy, the fat just so damn thick that nothing broke down. Like you you have to balance that, right? That's, that's this whole game. Of, of breaking it down to feed those microbes to continue to increase organic matter. Um, but by doing those things and balancing that, you're essentially priming the biology of the soil. Um, so it's, it's healthier and it's functioning. Um, just like, I mean, all of this stems back to, in, in basic terms, is mimicking nature. So we're mimicking how our native prairies functioned without the level of diversity, right? So we don't have one to 200 species or however many we're in the native prairies, without the buffalo, and in most situations, at least throughout the Midwest, uh, without fire. But we, what we are trying to do is make functional mimics, right? Highly diverse mixes, highly diverse root systems, highly diverse carbon-nitrogen ratios, allowing deer to browse them, you know, sometimes mechanically, or chemically uh, disrupting the cycle uh, to then plant something else. But essentially what we're doing is we're mimicking what was done for thousands of years in our, in our prairies. And that was, you know, a lot of that's some of the best farmland in the world. and has been for a long time uh, because that was built, you know, that soil was yeah, built over that time through address, the same idea.
0: Where in nature does a monoculture exist? You know, if you let a fallow field go, it, it a ton of different things pop up over time. Let it set for 10, 20 years. Mother nature's going to tell you that it needs that diversity. It's what feeds the soil beneath it.
1: Um, absolutely.
0: The one there was a vi- there was a video that you shared not too long ago, or I think it was a video or an, and a post, but you you touched on a baseball analogy and being a baseball guy who who pitched and was going to go, you know, going to go pro eventually. At least I used to think when I back when I was 19. I loved it. And, and I, I would love to hear you share that on the podcast for those listening in case they didn't catch it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I appreciate it. So, a common, uh, I don't know if it's common, but a term that's going around a lot right now, um, if you kind of dig into this, this soil health world, right, is quorum sensing. Um, and, and what that means, right? So people, there was an article in, uh, GreenCoverSeed.com has a newsletter. It's fantastic. It's free. Go to the website, fill it out. It's some of the best reading you'll, you'll ever do. It's, it's fantastic. But Dr. Christine Jones talks about this and uh, I just think she's, she's just awesome. Right. And she talks about that. What this means is the soil functions best when all <clears throat> microbiology of the soil are operating together. So as you increase, um, the number of positive microbes, right? So like we were just talking about through diversity, you're not only getting the mycorrhizal working together, but you're getting all these other branches working together too, right? All these other ones, tie, we might not even know about some of these relationships downstream, if you will, right? But they're all functioning together in order to benefit all of the microbes through a balanced, diverse mix, right? So as you increase that, the whole system works better together. OK, so that's the general idea of quorum sensing. A lot of times it was funny. We, we had a post and people were like, hey, I read that article three times. I, I still am kind of confused. So I came up with a baseball analogy to try to explain it to people. And, and I didn't understand. I'm not trying to say like, oh, I'm some super smart guy. Like I read it a couple of times. I was kind of like, how could I how can I wrap my brain around this? Right. So it helped me. So I thought I'd share it with some others. So uh, basically think of it like a baseball team. If a team has seven players. It's not going to be all that efficient. As you continue to increase the number of players playing on the team, you go to eight and maybe you go to nine players, it continues to become – has the opportunity to become more efficient playing. Now when you get to that ninth player, right, so you've reached the max number of players that you can have on the field. And then the team starts to play well together. And then they start playing better and they start winning games. And now they're getting momentum, right? And they're efficient and they're, and that's kind of the the basic idea um, behind this. Think of those players as different parts of the system. And as you add more, you continue to add a higher level of success and the players start to work together or the microbes start to work together, right? In a symbiotic way. And they're starting to work as a team. Chris, dr christine jones is a way better job than i do explaining this um but to me that kind of makes sense layman's terms i can most guys can picture a baseball field baseball team nine players and as you add those players you know if you don't have a guy in left field everybody's going to try to hit it to left field but once that whole field's filled up and you start to play better you're going to be more efficient and that's that's the general idea behind that
0: i love it and you know those listening the one thing that I've started researching and reading the studies, and you had touched on it as well, Al. That the plant, you know, you want to get to a point where you're testing the actual nutritional density of the plants that you are now growing utilizing this process. Well, there's a lot of organic farmers out there that have already done studies and such and comparing, you know, the mass produced, traditionally farmed fields and comparing the nu- nutrient, nutri- nutrition density of tomatoes that have been grown on soils that, you know, for lack of a better term, are not alive. They're only alive because of synthetic inputs. And and people would be astonished, and I encourage people to research this themselves and find these studies, you'd be astonished the nutritional differences between those two.
1: Oh, absolutely. I think it's in Gabe Brown's book. Um,
0: yes, Gabe does have a section that talks about it.
1: At, at Towards the end, he talks about the iron content in cows who have been grazing on depleted soils right so you know traditionally um now they do a lot of paddock grazing so they will do short bursts of time where the cows graze on say an acre right and and i'm not a cattle farmer but just bear with me here so we're going to remove one to two-thirds of the biomass that's grown highly diverse cover crop on that acre and then we're going to move those cows to the next acre and we're going to let this regenerate naturally now you know, and and then continue on. And it was something like a difference. I I can't, ah, man, I I wish I could remember exactly, but I want to say it's 50 to 60% less iron in cows um, today than like 30 years ago. Now it's getting better, right? Because now these regenerative agriculture practices are in place. So like the beef is, is getting healthier. Mm -hmm. Um, But because of they, they correlated to degraded soils. And uh, that's basically exactly what you're saying too. There was something another one in Gabe's book about oranges. Like you and I could eat seven oranges to get the same amount of vitamin C and vitamin A that our grandpa had to eat one.
0: Yeah. And if you start oh sorry, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I just was say it's it's funny because you start to think about it and you go, Well, the oranges don't look any different. Sizing wise, Mm -hmm. you know, they look good. Well, maybe we're using the wrong metric to measure the success, right? Because maybe it isn't the size of the fruit. It's the nutrient density of the fruit. And I think that correlates to deer hunting a lot. You know, you got one acre of food. Do you want it to be like fluff Mm
2: -hmm.
1: or you want that one acre to be as nutrient densely packed as possible? And how do you get there? Well, increasing OM through diversity.
0: Exactly. And just, you know, we can selfishly apply this. You know, instead of cows, we're dealing with deer. We're trying to produce the healthiest deer possible because, you know, we've shown that we do know that a healthier deer is going to exhibit a bigger body structure, stronger muscle system, you know, hopefully better antlers. Yes, there's a lot of genetics that play into that. But, you know, a healthier deer is ultimately one that we want and that we're trying to grow.
1: Well, absolutely, Ty. I mean, look at uh, MSU. I mean, some of the studies that they have done on nutrition uh, as it relates to whitetail deer and, and taken deer that were from areas uh, of really depleted soils and, and, and saying, okay, this area is known here in the southern part of Mississippi. I can't remember specifics, but southern part of Mississippi as you know, there's no big bucks here, you know, and, yep. and feeding these deer tons of good good quality nutrition and allowing the epigenetic triggers to be released among those deer within two um, generations and, and seeing the jump that those deer yeah. were equal to or better than the deer that came from the mississippi delta region which is i mean that rivals some parts of the midwest from from a quality rack perspective and deer weight perspective because there's a huge agricultural region there in, in mississippi and they did take deer from that same region right so Um, and fed them the same diet and those deer did increase antler size but it wasn't as big of a jump right so Mm -hmm. they were almost at the end of the study i think it was like a seven and a half year study but at the end of that study they were almost equal well we can't feed our, our way into this either it's illegal or most guys just don't have enough money and it's very hard to feed to get a wild deer just flat out to eat enough food like from, yeah. from that perspective, right? Because um, they're just not going to sit there and stick their nose in a, in a feed tube and eat enough to, to really make a massive difference on the rack. And MSU has a bunch of studies on that too, and I don't want to go down that rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> but what you deer will do is they'll bounce from a food plot to a food plot to a food plot and, and eat greens. And if every bite they're taking is a little bit more full of micronutrients, a little bit more full of protein – and a little bit just overall better for them. Maybe they don't have to exhaust as much energy to, to fill their, their rumen. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, these are all little, like I like to call it as the trickle impact is the, how it might impact our white-tailed deer herd. And, and maybe some of it's just me being blindly optimistic that this is, is really going to make a bigger impact than it, than, um, than it will. Right. Because it, it's kind of unquantifiable and there's so many variables of white-tailed deer but as you brought up, I mean, there are a lot of strong testing against it in, um, in human food, you know. So, again, this is why I use, use the diversity mixing and, and cover crops and uh, things like that even in my garden. Because I want that soil to get as good as possible for, for my wife and me to eat those tomatoes and those peppers and, and uh, you know, and, and have the best amount of nutrients it can.
0: Yeah, and we all know, you know, those deer, especially the, the the mother does with their their fawns, they're seeking the best, highest uh, food value that they can find without exerting the you know the least amount of calories. And yeah, you might be growing the same exact thing I am, but I guarantee you, if Al's farm's right next to my farm, his food plots, believe it or not, I would bet are going to get visited more because of the soil techniques and the soil life that's occurring underneath yours versus maybe mine or somebody else's or your neighbor's so there's that aspect of it as well you know yeah we may not make an impact in we may not visually see bigger bucks or or bigger deer but i believe truly that we can see uh, it'll increase our sightings because i really think you're creating a more attractive area i liken it to you know uh, mineral stumps great example Mm -hmm. deer you know you, you could you could hinge over a red maple, and you could clean cut a red maple and make a mineral stump. That mineral stump is going to get browsed, and I've experienced this. I've done it with uh, calorie pear trees on my own property, where the ones that I clean cut to try to create a mineral stump just get browsed like there's no tomorrow. And yes, they'll browse the hinged ones, but not nearly to the same degree. And that's because there is a lot more nutrients being shoved into fewer buds and, and fewer shoots. And it's the same type of thing. You're creating a more nutrient dense food plot, Al, and your deer are loving it.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's helped. I, I, I don't know. You know, it's hard to say, right? Like I, I hate to be somebody who speaks in absolutes and goes, Hey, you're going to do this. You're going to see more deer. What I oh, if, for you sure. know, yeah, no. What I can tell you is we have added, more food on the farm, and you've seen some of the pictures. I mean, I would, I would put it up, put some of my food plots up there um, with with just about anybody's. I mean, from not to sound arrogant, I mean they just they turn out really well. They they just really yeah. turned out really well. And and Ty, you're talking, my fertilizer bill last year was zero dollars. Zero dollars. I had knee-high brassicas. Um, I had, th- literally thousands of turnips. This is the first year. Ever, and this could be correlated to high deer densities. You know, I, I'm not gonna, or this is first year ever, I could barely find a turnip on the entire farm, Now, the, except the ones in the exclusion fence. Wow. And I have almost 10 acres of them, and you saw how big some of them are. I mean, they were yeah. really big to, to small ones. I couldn't find a turnip. It's like, it was mind blowing to me. Never have had that ever in uh, 11 years of owning this farm. So, uh, that tells me the deer are not hating it. I mean, they're definitely not hating it, you know? So, um, you know, overall, it's just a really, really fortunate, um, you know, I'm in a real fortunate situation to, to be blessed with what I have and to be able to chase this crazy passion of um, love and soil. And uh, there's so many people out there that know so much more than me. And I'm just scratching the the surface, you know, and trying to make it where I, cause I'm, I'm nerdy about this stuff, right? Like I'm self-admittedly, I, I'm nerdy about it. I enjoy it. Um, I kind of enjoy stepping outside of the deer world. I'm sure you can relate to yeah. that every once in a while. It just, it gets exhausting, man. You know, the, the, the constant competition of the deer world can just be overwhelming. And to step out and go, you know what? I'm going to go read something from Ray Archuleta about water infiltration. Because you hear about it every summer, right? Everybody goes, oh, I put my brassica plot in. We haven't got any gosh darn rain. We got two inches of rain and it hasn't rained in a month. Are my brassicas going to be okay? Well, if you had a good thatch thatch cover and you had increased organic matter and you had good soil microbial life in your your soil, I bet you you stand a heck of a lot better chance because you're not going to suffer as much runoff as soil that was just simply tilled, has dried, cracked. Everybody's seen that. Then it rains right after, yeah. and then it just runs off, and you're going to be able to have better water infiltration. I, I tell everybody, go to YouTube, type in Ray Archuleta water infiltration videos, and check that out. Yep. It's all I mean, it's mind blowing. That's something else I want to get get to and start recording and see if I notice any major increases in my water infiltration over the next you know lifetime, right?
0: Yep. And, you know, we, we, some of us just on like the very minimalistic viewpoint of that here, you know, well, plants need water to survive. But like you said, if the soil dries out the, and there's no cover on it, now we're also, we're going back to not only is the soil holding, it's not holding moisture, it's dry. It's also killing all those microbes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because
0: of the heat and the, the heat levels are going up, the temperatures going up and it's not just pausing it. It's literally just killing that soil
1: absolutely yeah i mean and, and they have yep. they have nothing to there's not there's then the plants struggle to grow so now there's yep. nothing to feed the microbes right there's no uh, liquid gold right the quote gay brown there's no carbon root exudates, exudates excuse me um going into the soil
2: so Damn. i mean when you
1: have these things happening um you can understand why we need so many synthetics to, to try to quote unquote i mean you're, you're basically trying to say okay grow and i'm going to throw all this this um synthetic fertilizer at you uh which i'm not against synthetic fertilizer i'm really not this isn't uh hopefully i didn't come across as just somebody who's against synthetic fertilizer i just simply think that like you had said earlier you can kind of build your own you know and i might try a little bit of fertilizer this year depending like i might do a couple areas like just uh maybe 25% of what the recommended fertilizer rate is. And then the other ones is as they are just to see if I notice any difference. Um, Yeah. But I'm really, really, I I would just tell anybody if you're at all interested in this, give it a try, take an acre, just, just give it a try. I mean, there's, it is, has been one of the most fulfilling things I have done on the farm. Um, I love doing TSI work and all that stuff, but just, taking the soil and literally watching it turn from like clay to where I take a shovel and there's earthworms. I mean, just crawling all over the place. I'm like, this is working. I mean, it's, it's, is friggin' working. You know, it's, it's really fulfilling, buddy. It's really, really fulfilling.
0: Yep, yeah. I think it, I didn't quote, I believe it was Ray Archuleta. And I don't know if I'm misquoting here, but you know, you touched on, the, the crawlers that you find the night crawlers the worms down in there when you pick up the shovel if you don't have worms you're failing yeah i think that was a very blunt point that ray made in one of his videos if you don't have worms you are failing and i have been on many a property with many a client or friend and dug into their food plots and it's just dead nothing so if you're listening and that sounds like your soil re to this podcast, Relisten to Al, and uh, we're going to go through before we close, Al. I'd really like to break down all these, re- you know, because we, we've mentioned Gabe Brown, but I don't think either of us has mentioned his book, or if we did, it was early on. I just want to make sure everybody hears that. Um, but yeah. really, re- really, really quick, um, is there anything in closing before we move to, because I'm going to actually surprise you now, there's one thing that I'm starting to do. I'm doing this uh, small acre hunting moments of truth where I'm just going to give you a hypothetical situation once or twice. And I just want your, your quick, honest reaction, what you would do in the situation. But before that, anything else in closing on soil before we wrap this up and then give everybody the resources,
1: man, I mean, we could talk about it literally all night, uh, but I think that I hit on pretty much everything that I had, uh, that, you know, mm-hmm. here, hopefully I, I, I hope that I, I explained things well, um, there's just so much out there, uh, to, to learn on, you know, and, um, this has been a lot of fun. Like really, I, I really appreciate it, Ty. This has been a lot of fun. I'm excited to give some resources. I'm excited to do the moment of truth as well.
0: <laughs> awesome. Well, hopefully this podcast has been kind of a push. I always tell all my clients when I'm helping them design their property for being conducive for deer, all I'm trying to do is nudge you, you know, picture a snowball at the top of a hill. You, you've had the desire. You've wanted. You want to do it. Really, all you need is a nudge because I think people make everything far too more complicated than it really needs to be. And yes, this soil thing. It is a huge rabbit hole. There's a ton of studies and there's tons of things that you can dig into. But just start doing something. Start reading something. Start trying to you know plant a cover crop, plant diverse plantings. Try to cut back on your inputs. Just do something. Doing something, working towards it is better than any better than nothing. So hopefully. Al and I in this discussion, and you tuning in, has kind of just prompted you to get get started in that direction. I know it's 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 nudging me. I've kind of started. I'm not quite as far as Al, but I know I want to get there. So, uh, quick hypotheticals, Al. Here we go. Oh boy. Um, nothing huge. There's 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 two two that two that Jake did, and I've got a few other ones. But um, real quick, apple or pear tree? Oh,
1: uh, apple.
0: Okay, and then after you give your response, if you want, we can discuss really quick, but why apple overpair?
1: Well, I would have to say I like apple from a deer feeding perspective. I like hunting old apple orchards, right? That's awesome. But also I like to eat apples and I also like the aesthetic view of an apple tree, right? So um, if you pull up to an old homestead and there's perfect rows of an apple orchard, and it's fall time, and they're loaded with apples. There's just a nostalgicness to that, right? And uh, that's why I would pick an apple over a pear.
0: Nice. Nice. Hack and Squirt or girdle? Hack and Squirt. I prefer I prefer Hack and Squirt. This year we girdled a ton because we didn't have chemicals yet, and I tell you what, I, I never want to girdle 200 trees in one day. <sighs> Chains, chainsaws are heavy.
1: Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> A lot of work. Yeah, my terrain is not uh, is not very good for, for carrying a chainsaw on a lot of those, those slopes. And um, hack and squirt, you can you can do it quickly. Um, and it's really good for a lot of the stuff I treat as tree of heaven. So um, yep. I, I do a lot of basal bark treatment as well with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, you don't want to girdle that tree because it'll respond negatively, um, at least yeah. in my experiences. So just going up with a little bit of herbicide, hack, keep on moving, you know, and uh, it tends to kill it. Kill it pretty quickly. So, yeah, Hackensworth uh, is my go-to on that one.
0: Real quick, what's your concoction that you use for your chemicals? You know, like Craig Harper has his concoction. Do you just use like Tordon, Gly, a mixture, bunch of others?
1: Yeah, I'm pretty uh, pretty simple on it. I use diesel fuel uh, as the okay. penetrating oil, and then I use uh, triclofear, and I use a little bit of glyphosate and a little bit of marking dye.
0: Nice nice all right here here's one that i this one usually gets some people thinking two bucks walk out into your food plot one night you're hunting now both are present present shots at 20 yards one's your best buck to date antler wise three-year-old or a six-year-old he was never blessed with anything great up top he's only got 90 inches which one are you shooting
1: and I know I I know the ages, like I've had trail camera pictures yes. of them.
0: Yes, uh, the shoot, ages that I said you know pretty well.
1: Yeah, I'm shooting a six-year-old.
0: Nice. Yep. And hopefully you have a picture or time to get a picture of the other one.
1: Yeah, I mean, just <laughs> pray, praying that the other one lives. I've actually – I passed a deer three years ago um, that would have been – probably my best buck i mean just a really beautiful and i passed him at 10 yards and i thought he was a three-year-old and i've actually still had pictures of that deer it'll be really? if, if he doesn't i the last picture i had of him was like towards the end of or early january uh, i talked to all the neighbors i don't think he's been killed from what they said so that deer will be seven and a half this year if i did my math right yeah and he was a I mean just the brute of a deer. goodness gracious, but uh, is
0: he starting to go downward at all yet or is he? No
1: nah, he, I mean, he hasn't he grew actually, I take the back. So last year he was like, mm, it, it like didn't really make a huge jump from three to four. This year he had made a much better jump. So I have a feeling next year he'll probably only be um, I, don't, I don't think he'll make a huge, huge jump. But uh, he just doesn't have a frame of a deer who looks like he's going to just blow up to something crazy. But he would be a respectable deer, like literally anywhere throughout the Midwest, like 100, and, I don't know, probably mid-150s.
0: Oh, his score doesn't matter if he's seven years old at that well, point. Well, at that point, too, yeah. Oh,
1: Plus, I have, that, yeah, that incredible. Video, I have video of him on my phone. I mean, it's, it's yeah, he was a uh, hardest one. I mean, he, he haunted me. I'm like, should I have passed that deer? Because he was beautiful at, at three and a half. I mean, he was probably, I don't know. It was, it was beautiful, big tines, I mean, big um, brow tines, I mean, just a beautiful deer. So, but yeah, to have a deer that you know is six and a half and comes out and looks like a steer standing in a food plot or something, <laughs> and you're like, oh, I know that deer six and a half. Yep. Oh, dude, shoot him in the ribs, buddy. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> Love it. Um, is hinge cutting allowed or not allowed on your property?
1: Allowed. Allowed. All right. In certain, All right. in, I'm, I'm very, um, again, you know, a lot of times, I can't really relate to like what people would implement on a flat property. Right. Because my property, I mean, it's straight up and straight down and it's rugged. And um, like, you're you're just not going to like my neighbor is 330 acres of seven year old cut to the bone, clear cut the deer trail. Yeah. One contiguous piece of, I mean, the deer trails going in through there, like you couldn't get a beagle to get through there. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. And um, so for me, like not that hinge cut bedding won't work. I, I don't know, but I just, it's very hard to compete with that. And there are sections of our farm that have been uh, pretty heavily select cut. So real thick bottoms and draws and, and things like that. So where I use a lot of hinge cutting to be quite honest is one time, one is quick wintertime food source. Like, you know, yep. I got some yep. maples on the edge of a food plot or something like that, that I just have never got to clear it out. It's a tough winter. Um, I just feel like cutting a tree sometimes. I mean, who doesn't like doing that? You know, I'll fell a tree or I'll, I'll, if I'm, you know, just moving quick, I'll just inch cut it smaller tree, something like that. The other area is road screening. I love yep. it for road yep. screening. I have a couple spots that are my cousin killed a real nice 9.3 years ago on this one. We call it tire plots, little tiny, little food plot. But you coming off this gravel road and you come about hundred yards in and This one, it's a four-wheeler path, tractor path. that has scrapes all over the top of this ridge. And you sneak in this back way and um, you can get in this nice ladder stand. Well, the problem is, is you're not that far from the road. You're only probably like 60 yards off the road. You're kind of parallel to it. Well, what I started to do is I started hinge cutting this mm, probably 30-yard wide swath. Now, the road goes downhill, so they don't have a ton of view into it. But just by hinge cutting that, it has pushed the deer to use that tractor uh, trail instead of just walking through the open woods there. And the number of scrapes this year down that trail and everything, number of pictures was a huge increase, absolutely huge increase. And it looks like hell. It's an absolute mess, but I don't care because that's what I want. Like, I don't want anybody, any person coming through there you know
0: yep. you use you used hinge cutting in a blockading methodology there yeah not for conducive a movement for deer right
1: and i also released yep. a couple oaks too that happened to be some nice, really nice oaks that were surrounded by maples and i'm like oh well this is going to work out well i'm going to hinge cut all these trees make it a block off and then i'll have a big beautiful oak that can grow there for another 20 years or so so yeah i do use it uh, just a little bit different than how some others might use it
0: oh yeah for sure um Final one, and I know this one's probably going to drive you absolutely crazy because it goes against what we've talked about. Oh, boy. I'm going to limit you to only two seed variants for the rest of your life. What are you
1: choosing? Rye grain for sure. Um, damn.
0: <laughs> right?
1: I'd probably have to say rye and clover. Um, and I'd probably say crimson and what I would try to do is I'd plant Ryan crimson in the fall and then I would let it get established as much as possible. That following spring, I'd let that crimson seed out completely and then I'd mow it in, in an effort to try to get that, um, Rye and crimson to then re reseed itself and uh just to try to continue to have fresh roots growing and uh yeah. you know hope maybe have some natural ragweed and things like that pop up that i'd you'd find me out there picking it and try to spread it around to get some more diversity <laughs> but uh i think that's what somebody
0: I, else that loves ragweed i'm not the only crazy oh, person oh no, I I, it. I,
1: it's fantastic ragweed pokeweed there's so many good native browse native browse species that are out there that uh you know get overlooked i mean just so many so so many and yeah ragweed's a great one and uh, rye grain is is if i only could plant one crop i'll tell you it'd be rye grain if i only could yep. do, i mean it's it's awesome it's just a workhorse
0: i am the same i'm the same t- same exact there i'm actually trying uh a root a root stock hmm. rye okay Have you heard of that it's a it's a type of rye uh it's a cereal rye grain but supposedly it has an even more cold tolerant uh, growth ability so oh. it, it will continue to grow and and thrive I think I think Jake said it's like two or three degrees which doesn't sound like much but That's
1: two amazing. to three degrees
0: can be an extra two weeks oh yeah so Jake Ellinger got me turned on to it I'm, I'm trying to find a source of it but yeah if you if you ever want to go down a little rabbit hole one night just google a rootstock and start re- it's a I think it's A R O O T S T O C K. Um I think I did that right. Yeah. But it's yeah, supposedly the cold tolerant and you know, I just I love winter rye. Yeah, I'm the same way as you. If I could plant just one thing, it would be it. It can grow anywhere, it's great for the soil. It it uh the thatch it can create is incredible.
1: Yeah. Yep. Oh, and deer love it. Deer will eat the snot out of it, which is another amazing thing. Like I can't I yep. I, I used to save pictures of deer like eating because i used to think that was like so cool when you get a cool trail camera picture with a bunch of you know forage in their mouth right or oh, turn up yeah. or something in their mouth i stopped doing that because you just you have a million of those pictures but uh it's like how many times like all beautiful turnips and stuff damn big doe picks her head up and it's full of rye yep you know and um yeah i, I love playing it and I like you can plant it over and over and over again like you know that's something i i've in touch on but like layering rye you know and um going in and and planting your mix and then going in a couple months later and and planting it again so again now you have diversity of roots you know going into the soil you have different levels of palatability depending on your deer density in that area um you know that's a that rye is just a workhorse that way you can do it all the way up till what october november you could probably get rye Um, established
0: but yeah that's all I got. Those are the those are the situations. Those are the the moments of truth. Um, now I want to go through the resources because you and I touched and quoted on a lot of yeah. different people. And for those listening, I'm going to try to put these in the show notes. And if I don't have links, I'll at least have the description of the person or something. So um, the first the first or you know what, Al, you just go through them. You rattle them off, and if you miss any, I'll I'll swing back around.
1: Oh, that yeah, that's fine. Um, so. Dr. Grant Woods, Grown Deer TV. Obviously, they have a lot there. Um, but what I would like like to everyone to look into is um, he talks about a, the Buffalo System is what he calls it. Uh, but if you want to check it out, he has a uh, webinar or seminar on YouTube. I think it's called Buffalo System Seminar. It's about an hour hour and a half long. Um, now, remember, he's using a no-till drill, drill, excuse me, and a um, steel crimper. Uh, but the ideas that we've discussed are the same, right? So just keep that in mind there. Um, A book that I think everybody should read um, is A Soil Owner's Manual by John Sticka. Absolutely fantastic book. It's short, it's sweet, it's to the point. It explains symbiotic relationships between plant and soil and mycorrhiza. If you wanna keep hearing that word mycorrhiza, which you hear it a lot? It explains how that functions. It's simple to understand it's it's just a fantastic book um dirt to soil gabe brown Uh, again gabe brown big farmer south dakota Um, he's changing the way a lot of people farm he's done ted talks he's done seminars he's done just about every you know he's been in documentaries um gabe brown's like as much as a celebrity now as he is a farmer but you know deep down that's what he does and um he has done amazing things in that book dirt to soil i actually just gifted it to a buddy of mine who grew up uh, grain farming and i said hey man you know I, I think you're really gonna like this and uh he took it and was i think pretty excited to, to dig into it so gabe brown dirt to soil great book uh south dakota tough conditions i think he gets average of 16 inches of rainfall a year and he grows some amazing crops right so uh, really worth the read uh, Ray Archuleta, soil scientist uh, from the USDA. He has worked with Gabe Brown, David Brandt. Dave Brandt's uh, actually down uh, just outside of Columbus. He's an Ohio farmer. I think he's been doing no-till since the 1970s. And um, just his amazing soil. They say his soil is literally like walking on, uh, walking on chocolate cake. It's just amazing soil. He grows some huge radishes. If you just want to Google David Brandt, he's an amazing one. But um, Ray Archuleta, YouTube him. Uh, his seminars on youtube are fantastic his experiments are fantastic um just explaining how all of this works and explaining it really simply he just does a really really good job um, one of the things i would say is look up his uh, look up his experiments where he's showing how hard rainfall impacts no-till fields versus tilled soils really 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 cool um jason snavely we talked about jason on a few different times here jason does an amazing job um, with his podcast he's i think working with dr rick haney he mentions on his podcast on a few different um, projects dr rick haney is another one out of state of texas who's just has some amazing things i mean he has a soil dust named after him. the guy's a really really smart man um, again you can youtube dr rick haney and jason snavely um, for things jason owns a seed company and has a podcast where he had uh, Gabe brown on there um adam daughtry was one i didn't actually list here but that's another one ty that's really good he, jason had adam daughtry on adam is uh i think the nrcs officer that probably is wrong but it's something like that but he uh works with farmers in coffee county tennessee and talks about planting green and planting through like something like 18 tons of biomass per acre um, and some of the results that they're getting which were really really incredible So uh, those are a couple other ones to add. Uh, Getting close to the end, I promise. So The Soil Will Save Us. That's a good book um, from uh, Kristen Olson, I think is the author. Uh, It's not quite as detailed as some of the other ones, but uh, if you're like me, just start grabbing any book that talks about soil and reading it. So uh, that is another one that I would recommend. It talks about a doctor, um, a PhD from uh, actually uh, the Ohio State University who was from India and had grown up on a small farm in India and it got him interested in soil health. And I think it's Dr. Lowell, but I might have missed, I might have got that incorrect if I if I do, and he's listening, I apologize. Uh, but he's done some amazing research, and uh he he's quoted in this book a couple of times as well, which is very interesting. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Dr. Christine Jones, YouTuber, she's amazing, <laughs> has a ton of research. I mean, just really, really fascinating stuff, Dr. Christine Jones also is a farmer. Um, a lot of these people, too. Rayarch, a lot of farms. Um, yep. So they're not just PhDs, um, but they also are uh, farming, if not for full time, at least enough to to have a really good understanding about the importance of yields and things like that. So Dr. Christine Jones, she's actually doing a seminar. Um, I invite anybody to join. You can check that out on greencoverseed.com. Uh She's going to be doing a seminar. I think it's starting next Tuesday, and um, it's about two hours long. It starts about 630 Eastern. 530 central uh i guess you can ask questions and she's just going all over all things soil health and that's put on by green cover seed uh, that's my next one on my list too is actually green cover website um, a ton of in- interesting information there um from blog write-ups to videos i mean it's just it's endless to seed varieties i mean they have a lot of great information there um uh, Um, book I'm actually about halfway through right now is called Growing a Revolution. I added that one on you, Ty, but um, Growing a Revolution by David Montgomery. Uh, Again, it's just it's very similar to some of the other books, but just a little bit different spin on it. One of the chapters so far that I found fascinating was how no-till is helping to save the agricultural system in Africa, uh, because obviously they have struggles there with retaining moisture and uh, how no-till is is working there so imagine if it can work there what are some of the things we can do and and one of the big things they call it there is mulch but the same idea is what we call thatch, right so um, growing a revolution and it talks a lot he's actually where the section i'm in now he's interviewing gabe brown so uh, some of that might be a little bit redundant but i promise you every time you read one of these or listen you pick up a little something else and uh, the last one i'll put is google google is your friend i can't tell you how many times I have Googled benefits of rye grain to the soil, benefits of radish to the soil. And I end up finding a research that they've done where brassicas have helped to be, you know, anti-pathogenic for XYZ or, or they think it has benefits of curing, like crazy things that people are doing research on out there that you would never imagine. And not all of it relates to big racks on whitetails, but uh, it's interesting if nonetheless. And, and Google can be a great resource to take you to a lot of really good academia-type websites with some really amazing research. So I always tell people, if you're bored, type a question into Google. Hey, what does rye grain do for my soil? What is the difference between rye grain and rye grass? Um, And you will find some amazing people, amazingly smart individuals who've wrote some really good things. And uh, that's my short but (laughs) pretty uh, information-packed list, buddy.
0: I will add one and maybe, hopefully, maybe this is even a new one to you to add to your list. Yeah. And that is uh, Dr. Fred Provenza, the book Nourishment.
1: I have it, had people recommend that, and I have not read it. Okay. And I'm making a note right now. Yep.
0: And so for those listening, and actually, if you want a little bit of a taste of this, and another thing that I I don't think either of us mentioned, Jason Snavely's podcast is the Drop Tine Podcast. So if you Google that, it'll come up. If you just type in Jason Snavely Podcast, it'll probably come up too. But he has Fred on an episode. So if you want to look at a specific one or kind of touch on what nourishment is, the the nourishment's the overall title, but then the subtitle is What Animals Can Teach Us About Rediscovering Our Nutritional Wisdom. And it, it you and I kind of touched on it, Alan, how, you know, the, the nourishment level of plants and, and how the animals actually tell us what they need and desire and that symbiotic relationship between those consuming the organisms and the organisms that are growing in the plants. So great book, um, great addition to any reading list if you want to get into this type of a mindset. It's a little bit less about soil and more about like the consumption side of things, but again, it all it all works together.
1: Absolutely. No, I think I listened to that podcast. That might've been why I recalled the name, but, um, I just wrote that down because that's, that's exactly it. I, I, mean, the, the idea that everything's interlinked, I mean, that's, that's kind of the beauty of this, right? So, uh, I'm, I just, this has been a lot of fun. I just want to thank you for having me on and hopefully my rambling didn't put anybody to sleep, but this has been been a ton of fun and I'm ready to, to read more about soil
0: exactly so thank you to everybody who listened thank you to al um i hope to have a lot more conversations like this and i know al is also a big tsi uh he's a tsi nerd just like he's a soil nerd and i'm a deer nerd so maybe we can get together al again circle back maybe sometime maybe next year or later this fall and maybe have a tsi discussion
1: anytime buddy i'm working on an equip program right now trying to get things treated and uh got a couple videos up on it i i I believe it's really important. I think it's overlooked uh, on a lot of places, and uh, it's something I'm passionate about there as well. So anytime, I really appreciate you having me on.
0: Good deal. And if anybody wants to check in with Al, you can look him up. He goes by Al James on Facebook. His YouTube channel is A Journey to Better Soil and Timber. Um, he has a very active thread at the Ohio Outdoors. If you scroll down to the uh, Habitat and Wildlife Management section, some of his threads are pinned at the top. And uh, he is over there with Jared and and. Brian, you guys have heard me on the Habitat podcast a couple times, but they've got a Facebook page called Habitat Chat, Um, just discussions about anything and everything habitat related. So those are the best places to get in touch with Al. And uh, thank you all for listening. And thanks, Al, once again. God bless everybody. And uh, good luck out there. What an episode that was. Thanks again to Al. Thanks to everybody that's listening. Stay tuned for the next episode of the Smaller Hunting Podcast. It's probably going to be a drop in, uh, check in status with me and some of the things going on. And uh, hopefully, even in the coming days, I had somebody write in and they had a great recommendation. They'd really like to hear a sit down discussion with just Pops and me. So uh, I really like the idea. I think it would be pretty incredible for us to maybe do a look back. It would probably need to span across a couple episodes because we've been through quite a lot. And uh, I think it would be a very relatable uh, discussion for most of you guys out there who are normal, average Joes like us. But uh, stay tuned for the next episode of the Small Acre Hunting Podcast. And as always, guys, God bless and good luck out there.